Um, let's talk a little bit about how your paths originally crossed with Bob Dole. I was working in New York City uh, uh, for a nursing association and working as a nurse. And in the course of that, it was a student association, began to spend time in Washington doing government affairs, student loan issues, uh, nursing student program. And in the course of that, came to know people at the Senate Finance Committee. And, uh, you know, that was over a couple of years period of time. And I had made a decision at that point to go back home to California and was beginning to think about that transition out of New York. And one of the staff in the Finance Committee said to me, you know, how about Washington and how about Bob Dole? He's looking for someone to do health issues for him. At the time, he was a relatively junior member of the Senate Finance Committee. Was this before 76? This was, no, this was in 1977. Okay. So he had a national reputation. He had a national reputation but not one particularly on the Hill, per se, and not one in health policy at all. And he was going to become and was uh, the ranking Republican on the Finance Committee, Health Subcommittee. Herman Talmadge was the chairman. And the uh, committee had only recently developed a partisan or a, a staff that was divided between Democrats and Republicans. It had really until quite recently, prior to that time, been a single staff. But the Republicans had decided that they needed an independent staff and began to do so. And the Democrats had on their staff a physician. And health policy was becoming a big issue. It was during Carter's term of office. Hospital cost containment was a major issue, cost controls. And Dole made a decision. He wanted someone on the staff to be actively involved in health issues. Uh, and so the Finance Committee staff member suggested that he interview me, suggested to me I interview with Bob Dole. I, of course, had no idea who Bob Dole was to any extent at all. I was a you know liberal Democrat, born and raised in California, and uh, no exposure really to the Midwest and certainly not to Republican politics or to Bob Dole. But now, obviously, you know, you know he yeah, yeah, exactly. But didn't really... Know, him, know of him. Some baggage from, from that campaign? Um, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't terribly involved. I mean, I, like everyone else, I voted, but, you know, I didn't follow it terribly closely. I wasn't really active politically, except in healthcare issues, you know, not as a uh, partisan pol- uh, political matter. And interestingly enough, I said, well, it'll be interesting. Uh, and so I came down for an interview with Dole. I will never forget it. I uh, was in his office uh, in the Dirksen building, uh, and it was relatively dark. The room was relatively dark. Uh, and he was, um, you know, matter of fact, you know, relatively short, uh, as he's wont to do, uh, certainly at that point in time. And, you know, we sort of talked back and forth. It was a relatively short conversation, and I said, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a liberal Democrat. Uh, you know, sort of born and raised. Um, and I'll never forget at the time, his comment was, you know, I really don't care what your politics were as much as I care about the fact you've taken care of patients and you've had direct contact. And I think we need people looking at health issues who have had that kind of experience. 
And it was really on that basis, I thought it would be an interesting thing to do for a year. And he made a decision that, you know, he spoke with some other people, the finance committee staff and uh, Ken Benjamin, who was on his staff at the time and handling some of the health issues, spoke with Ken. Ken had spoken to me as well. Mary Wheat, who was also a member of his staff at the time, who was handling health issues and doing legislative correspondence and things of that nature, and made a decision that, you know, I would be interesting, and I made a decision that it would be an interesting thing to do for a year. And that was it. Now, how did the finance committee staff at that point relate mm-hmm. to the personal staff? Because it was always a, uh, a bit of a... And, and always was, okay. never changed. <laughs> um, the personal staff was personal staff, and the committee were the committee. And there was a clear division, and there was a... Were there loyalty tests of... Well, for, or, uh, interesting. Um, the um, the finance committee is unusual in the fact that the committee staff answers solely to the chairman, and to the ranking in this case. And the the members of the committee had no hiring rights, so Dole, even as a subcommittee ranking, had no authority to hire on the finance committee staff. His staff were simply uh, personal staff, and we had to figure out a way to work with the committee to achieve whatever the, you know, in my case, Bob Dole wanted to get done. Uh, But the the staff answered to, at that time, Carl Curtis and Herman Talmadge, or Russell Long, who was the full chairman. And the staffs of the uh, committee really, you know, saw themselves answering up. And I was in constant negotiations with Dave Swope, who was the Republican staff member at the time on the committee, uh, as Dole's representative. Um, and so it was, it's always been a tenuous relationship and somewhat tension-filled because you want to represent your particular boss and the staff of the committee represented the committee. And so it was my earliest introduction to negotiation uh, uh, on the part of uh, an individual member in concert with a committee. Uh, and so, you know, that's always been an interesting relationship. I was lucky. I knew the majority staff very well. Uh, Jim Mongan, Jay Constantine, John Kern, Bob Hoyer, all were Democratic staff members who had introduced me to Dole and who were enormously important in the doings of the committee. And I suspect they cut me a lot of slack and helped me help Dole to, uh, to move, you know, as part of the committee. Uh, Dave Swope was the Republican staff member. Um, uh, and again, there was this tension between what the committee wanted and what the, the members wanted. So but, the, did you graduate, I mean, as Dole, when Dole moved yes, up the ladder and became yes. chairman? Well, you know, what what was interesting was within six months, uh, an unusual thing occurred. Uh, Dole was relatively junior. There were at least two people ahead of him, uh, Mike, uh, let's see, Cliff Hansen and Carl Curtis, both of whom made a decision to retire. And that is what moved Dole up to become the ranking of the full committee at the time, uh, much to everyone's surprise. I mean, there was no reason to think that you know they wouldn't have been there for a long time and that Dole wouldn't have been a junior member for a long time. But they both retired. 
Um, and I don't recall who else was sort of in the lineup at the time, but Dole was the next one in line who didn't already have a ranking position. And he moved up in that following January. I joined the staff the Memorial Day weekend of 1977. Uh, in January of 78, Dole became the ranking. And in the fall, therefore, of 77, he began to build a staff and made a decision to hire Bob Lighthizer as the staff director, uh, Rod DeArmond as the deputy. They, in turn, then began interviewing to hire, and I interviewed to hire to go to the full committee. Those are pretty impressive people. I mean, Very. How did Dole find them? You know, that's an interesting question. I don't know the, I know the answer to that question. They were both at Covington and Burling, both young lawyers, um, uh, both with individual expertise, Bob's in trade, uh, Rod's in law, uh, or in tax, rather. Um, uh, Bob also, I mean, had a fairly broad perspective. And I don't know who it is that, that'll be an interesting question to ask Bob and Rod, how they got to Dole, because I don't think either of them had any history with Dole. But Dole clearly wanted a strong staff. And uh, I must say, in retrospect, not in my interest, but Dole was known for, and I think to this day, known for having one of the strongest finance committee staffs. And I think it was the quality of that leadership, the decision on Bob, the decision on Rod, and they in turn then hired up. Um, How much of that do you think was influenced by the assumption, which I assume was there, that he was interested in writing in 1980. I suspect it had a lot to do with that. I mean, he wanted to begin to build a very fulsome policy staff, and there was no question that those issues were going to be issues that were critical. I mean, his decision to be on the Finance Committee, um, in addition to ag, I mean, ag would have been natural, uh, given his constituency, but finance is one of the big committees, and it's a big committee for a lot of reasons, and it had to do with trade, it had to do with tax, it had to do with social welfare policy. I mean, it was one of the plums in terms of broader perspective. And so I think the quality of the staff clearly would position him to begin substantively to engage on very important issues. Generalizations, obviously, are dangerous, but looking back, do you think there are basic qualities that he he looked for in, uh, in people? I mean, beyond the specific expertise uh, of, a, of a given subject right. matter, are there, uh, is there such a thing as a prototypical Dole staffer? Or? Um, probably not. I mean, if you think back over the, the at least the 20 years I was with him, I mean, there are high points and midpoints in terms of uh, staff skills. Um, I think quality of mind, uh, certainly he wanted people who were bright, uh, who were well thought of, who were inquisitive. I think he wanted people who were strong, who were prepared to um, play a leadership role in terms of getting things done, you know, who were, I don't want to say aggressive in the negative sense, but people who clearly were ready to take charge. He, he didn't want a bunch of staff who were, you know, uh, sort of going to be led by somebody else. He wanted people who were going to be very strong advocates uh, for him and for the policies and the issues he cared deeply about. Uh, I think he... Um, Work ethic. I think work ethic. I mean, the number of times he would walk in the door and say, you know, uh, 
uh, you could shoot a cannon through here and not hit a soul. And that was probably on a Saturday morning. Um, you know, he was a guy who was there and there always, there early. Uh, you know, does anybody in here read a newspaper? Um, you know, a classic dull line, uh, what's new, what's up? You know, what's cooking? what's cooking, wandering desk to desk, expecting you to be on top of whatever it was. And you had a list of, you know, the six things you were going to say when he asked what's cooking. Um, so he wanted people that were aggressive, that were engaged, that were energetic, um, and were tough. Obviously, without naming names, were there people who fell by the wayside? Absolutely. Along the way? A staff? And, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and what... Absolutely. What would account for that? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think there's a different perspective on the personal staff to the committee staff. And most of my time was committee staff and leadership. Um, I only spent five or six months on the personal staff. You know, I think it was, um, uh, you know, whether he felt he could trust you, whether he was comfortable with your judgment. I think he looked to other people for reinforcement in terms of people's opinion of people. You know, did other people respect your judgment? Did other people respond well? Um, I think he uh, appreciated strength and didn't particularly tolerate or appreciate weakness. I mean, if you kind of folded under the pressure, either of his inquiry or the pressure of just the issues or the time or the demanding uh, the demands of the time, um, I mean, you were expected to be there full time, all the time, always available. And um, how did that affect you know the number of women around? I mean, strong women. Well, there weren't um, many to start with on the on the finance committee staff, um, and uh, you know you knew the kind of job that it was. And um, I don't think he ever had a reluctance to deal with a woman because she was a woman. I think it was a question, did he see you as a strong personality with a strong point of view? Uh, I mean, I think the transition when I became chief of staff uh, in the majority leader's office, uh, the transition from Rod DeArmond to myself, I think Dole at the time really wondered, will people feel that she is strong enough? And it wasn't about she, it was about the person. And uh, I think he... I think came to be comfortable with that and came to feel that uh, people did respect me. But his concern was, will other people treat this person seriously? And if he saw people not responding, people not taking direction, people not seeing you as a spokesperson in his behalf, or if he was at all concerned about whose agenda was in the forefront, um, you know, he was very sensitive, as he should have been, as to whether we were representing him or our view of what it should have been. And there was nothing, I mean, in my view as the staff director, I think Rod held the same view, I think Bob held the same view, uh, was the first test was, you know, who are you working for, who's in charge. Uh, and I remember, you know, questions about, you know, whether people were misleading Dole or, you know, you know, sort of representing Dole. There was never a question in any of our minds as to who was in charge. And when there was, they were not likely someone who will do well if anyone misrepresented him. So uh, he was more observant. Oh, absolutely. Than perhaps people oh, suspected at the time. There was no question that he always knew what was going on and was always two steps ahead. 
you know, we all like to think that we had news, you know, that, you know, here's, here's today's update. Chances were he knew two days before you did, uh, but didn't necessarily tell you that. I mean, you know, was waiting for, you know, to see whether or not we were catching up, but he was extraordinarily observant. I mean, no question in my mind. Was, was the job of AA just an impossible job? Yes. I mean, I, I don't think anybody survived very long. Um, that? You know, it's an interesting question um, because there was much more longevity on the finance committee staff. Uh, and I don't know whether that was because there was a little distance and <laughs> we weren't there every day. Um, but also, some of the there, you're dealing with, and in effect, you're judged by your expertise in particular areas. Subject matters, right. Whereas... The AA yeah, is a thankless, yeah, amorphous sort of, you know, managing Kansas, managing, and, and not, as he became much more uh, senior and much more engaged as a finance committee chairman, as the majority leader, um, you know, that's where the focus was. It was on what was going on there on a day-to-day basis, and that's where all the sort of real battles took place. And for the AA, I'm sure, you know, in terms of his attention, you know, it was clearly, uh, it was always on Kansas. There was never any question about that. But we clearly consumed a lot of his time, uh, you know, as the committee or as the leadership and, um, you know, the AA had this sort of, you know, managed the sort of mundane, if you could describe it as that, sort of day-to-day, you know, dealing with things uh, that I'm sure was terribly frustrating. Didn't the AA also have, in some ways, an extra burden because of Joanne and Betty? I mean, in the sense that their role was so... Specialized. Well, and it was. Entrenched, and, particularly Joanne. And um, because he, for a lot of reasons uh, that were quite uh, understandable, had enormous trust uh, and faith in their judgment and their relationship. And so things that you might in other offices find fall to the AA in terms of judgment calls and maintaining relationships in the state and being the principal contact of politically. Uh, for state and for other issues. He had in Joanne someone who played that role and had been with him since the Dolls for Dole days. Um, And it's hard to ever overcome that. And so from an AA's perspective, you were never really the principal in that respect. Very difficult, no question. Talk about the role Joanne Cole played in Bob Dole's Boy, um... She knew him as well and better than any of us. Um, And I think he had in her someone who um, had seen him at all points in his political life and had a reality that none of us could have ever achieved as many years as we all spent. Uh, None of them were ever going to be as long as Joanne. I think he had uh, absolute faith in her loyalty, I think had an absolute faith in her judgment about political matters, and she was fearsome as a um, uh, you know a, a lion at the door. Um, and I think he admired her toughness. Absolutely, 
Absolutely, and her absolute loyalty, and her um, um, not protection, but her sensitivity to him. Um, I think at times it got in the way. I think there were times where people found that off-putting. Um, there were times. Um, Was she ever hurt? Uh, I'm, I'm sure um, she was. I'm sure there were things in her life uh, or relationship with him that were disappointing at times. Um, I don't know that any of us are really privy to that. Mm. Um, but you, Focusing so much of your life well, that, on, one, that, on yeah. one person and right. on, on his goals and aspirations. Um, you know, but those are decisions that people make in their life in terms of how they're going to spend their time. And, you know, we all sort of make those decisions. But she clearly, her life was Bob Dole 24-7, uh, more than any of us. And I'm sh- there were great rewards in that, but there were also, I'm sure, terrible challenges in terms of how you balance the rest of your life. And, you know, when things go well, they go well. When they go badly, you know, they go really badly. And so you suffer the ups and you really say, suffer I, I the downs. If she, if she bore the brunt of the down periods. She certainly saw it far more than many of us. And I'm sure, um, you know, there were days that were remarkably dark uh, because she had put so much of herself into his the political side of his life and didn't, in some respects, interestingly enough, I mean, all of us were committed to him politically, but we also had the benefit of the sort of policy successes. I mean, you, you know, did you lose the election? Yes, but what did you achieve in Social Security? What did you achieve in welfare reform? What did you achieve in food stamps? What did you achieve in Medicare? When you're, the large part of your life is the political side, um, you get a little less of that sort of positive reinforcement uh, by having achieved some of these outcomes. Um, and so she had, a, not that she wasn't proud of him, she was, but it was a little less personal. I mean, I felt good when we did the hospice benefit. You know, okay, well, it came after, you know, a presidential, you know, sort of uh, race that didn't go well. But, you know, I was looking at, you know, what did we achieve in, you know, bailing out Social Security? It's a different, you know, you have a little bit of a difference in terms of reality. How early on did you, if you did, sense a discrepancy between sort of the public image of Dole and the reality? I mean, as long as... I've known him. People have been coming up and saying, we didn't know he was funny. I mean, that's just the most obvious. But I mean, there was that period clearly in the mid-80s, early 80s, when he began to demonstrate a capacity for responsible leadership. Yes. So in a kind of a professional way, people Mm -hmm. began to reassess Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. old gunslinger you know, yes, from the yes, from the Nixon days, yes, yes. But but beyond and beneath that professional mm-hmm. level, the, the man himself. I mean, did did you sense complexities? Uh, Certainly or, not at first. Um, it was probably into the finance committee days um, when I began to have a better sense of that, and it was because I had more exposure to him. Um, you know, uh, you needed that to really see the sort of depth. I mean, the sort of 
you know, rumbling around desk to desk. You got one uh, uh, vision. You know, sitting down in uh, you know the back room with Bob Dole and Danny Rostenkowski. Um, what was that like? Uh, entertaining. Um, uh, unbelievably frank, you know, or a conversation with Herman Talmadge or Russell Long. I mean, you know, I look back and I am blessed with having been there at a time when there were giants, you know, Abe Rubikoff, Herman Talmadge, I mean, just, you know, Russell Long, Jack Hines, John Chafee. I mean, just remarkable human beings. Let's walk through some of those days. How did Long run his committee? Oh, boy. And and, and the relationship Um, with Dole and how that evolved. uh, I'll never forget the uh, Dole being called by Howard Baker and told that um, he was going to be the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, and Dole's reaction was, you know, well, who's going to tell Russell? Um, And when the vote occurred in the committee... Uh, and they called Mr. Chairman and long voted and um, sort of said, you know, not only am I voting, you know, for my chairman, I'm voting, you know, it was sort of a, it was sort of a, I'm voting for my chairman. Um, I think their relationship was quite good. I think because they were both um, consummate politicians, uh, but at the end of the day, they were also consummate legislators. They were both people who you would present them with an issue and the the question was, how did you resolve the question? Not, how can we pit ourselves against one another? And, uh, you know, Long was unbelievably wily. You know, and you always worried when Long came up to your boss and put his arm around his neck and whispered in his ear because you never really knew what was going to happen. Uh, and that was Long's style. And it was, you know, I'm trying to remember now the sort of quote. It was something about... Um, you know, never, um, never call. Oh, I'm now forgetting what the quote is, but it's it is um, uh, you know sort of never you know talk when you can whisper, never whisper when you can wink. I mean, the sort of you know sort of very personal connection. Mm. Um, you know, similarly with Moynihan. Uh, enormous respect for one another as legislators. The same with George Mitchell, both at the Finance Committee as well as uh, as leader. Um, you know, these were people, Robert C. Byrd, another one, who, they had enormous respect for each other. And it's because at the end of the day, they were interested in solving problems. That raises, I mean, we're jumping ahead here, but it does raise a very large issue of that sort of haunts those years uh, at the top of the national political scene. Is there a conflict between wanting to be a successful legislator and running for president? I think it's very hard. Um, I think it's hard in a number of respects. I mean, one, um, I think being in office and running... You know, you, you're you're at risk of having been held accountable for every vote you ever had. I mean, how many times did we hear the vote, Dole voted against Medicare? <coughs> you know, how many years later? Um, and so you you have your history, and the longer the history, the longer the the, the need for explanation. But I think it also um, is challenging because you know the instinct is to, on the one hand, on the other hand, you know, when you're running for something. 
uh, <clears throat> so that you can get the broadest possible support without alienating, and, unless it is so bright line, a, you know, sort of a decision. Uh, it's very difficult to, you know, sort of just come down hard and know you're not going to, you know, sort of make somebody unhappy. As a legislator, I mean, what you want to do is stand in the well and have everybody come and say, all right, now let's figure out who, you know, how are we going to get this done and with whom are we going to deal and what's the trade-off going to be. Um, and I think, I mean, I know the campaign, particularly in 96, you know, their great anxiety was the fact that Dole was still leader and still having to do these deals. And everybody was going to take the opportunity to say, here he goes and get squishy on us. Uh, certainly the conservatives were, you know, always were a little suspicious that the guy was too quick to come to, you know, whether it was Tefra or whatever it happened to be. Um, but as a leader, as a, a legislator, uh, if your goal is to achieve an end result, there is that kind of negotiation that occurs. As a uh, politician in the sense of running for something, you want to leave as much room for yourself as you possibly can beyond those things that are so fundamental that you have to put a stake in the ground. And so I think it makes it enormously difficult um, to do that. Is it also true that there is a lingo that the longer you're inside the belt... Oh, yeah. And, the, and in some ways, <coughs> the more successful Absolutely. you are... You start you talking the talk. Shorthand. Sure you do. Sure you do. And people were always complaining that Dole talked like, you know, the leader uh, and talked in shorthand and talked in, you know, sentences that made sense to people that were legislating, well, this amendment and that amendment, and we we're going to do cloture and we're going to, you know, have a conference committee and we're going to have a, uh, a colloquy. Um, you do talk and, you know, it's like any profession. I mean, you know, the healthcare world is probably the worst. We all talk in acronyms, but hell, everybody does. You know, it's the Defense Department or wherever it is. And Dole talked like a legislator. And so the short bumper sticker, you know, sort of, you know, your instinct is to say, I want to do X and then explain it because that's what you're used to doing. You know, the demand is to just say X. <clears throat> and let somebody else figure out the hell how you're going to do it. Uh, and I think that does become complicated. And some people can switch back and forth much more easily. Um, you know, Dole was never um, as facile uh, as others in the sort of one-liner. I mean, he was from, you know, there are things about him that are, he has the best timing of any comedian I've ever known. Uh, I mean, he's just unbelievable. He's so quick. But, um, but the sort of policy, you know, translation. And, I mean, he tortured us for good reason, that we talk like policy people. I mean, because that's what we were. And uh, perhaps we weren't as sensitive to the political side and the sort of one-liner um, that, you know, running for office calls for. And that's a hard transition, and some people are better at it than others. Isn't it also true that, I mean, the nature of the presidency, particularly over the last 20, 30 years, maybe post-JFK, President Harry Truman said famously the chief job is persuasion. Right. But presidential persuasion is now increasingly theatrical. Oh. I mean, it's, it's staged. It is it, you know, beyond and, and staged. It's, and, and it's become very inauthentic, and people know it, and, right. and they're very dissatisfied with it. Right. But persuasion on the Hill, and particularly it's behind a very closed different. doors, it's a very different. It's a totally different, isn't it? Very different. 
And it is uh, enormously personal. Uh, it is enormously one-to-one. Uh, it is uh, not playing to the crowd because you're dealing with people uh, who are used to having that conversation. You're dealing with people who want a result and want a commitment on an end result. And uh, the consequences are quite quick and quite clear. And, uh, you know, the other interesting thing, I think, on the Hill, and I think it's one of the things that's most remarkable, is how dependent people are on that personal relationship. You know, as, uh, as the senator ha- has said in the past, you know, the one thing you have is, is, your, is your reputation and essentially uh, the agreement of a handshake and your word. And that's the last thing that you ever want to lose. And so, you know, your word is your bond. And you give it carefully if you're wise. And that's a very personal matter. I mean, you know, people knew they could do deal with the boss and know that he would hold to his word and that he wasn't going to say things glibly and then come back and say, you know, we'll tell him I lied. You know, sort of a famous Russell Blanc story about the, you know, chicken in every pot, you know, we'll tell him I lied uh, kind of thing at the end of the, at the, end of the thing. I, I think it was this Uncle Earl who said it. Uh, well, what about that chicken there? I'll tell him I lied. Um, did, by the way, did Russell Wong, did he talk about his father? Did uh, he talk about Huey? Or? Uh, he, uh, yes, and sometimes at the most inopportune times. I mean, he would tell some, you know, some story or, you know, as, you know, as, uh, actually it wasn't specific to his uncle, but I'll never recall we were in the middle of some welfare reform uh, matter, some issue having to deal with uh, low-income assistance, and he started talking at length about how he couldn't hire anybody to clean his windows, and you know, you know, what's wrong with me? you know, and you just kind of wanted to think, oh my, you know, well, yeah, I'm prepared to pay him, you know, four bucks an hour. It's more, you know, you just, say, oh my god, uh, but yes, he would slip into stories occasionally. They were always quite humorous, but. Um, but the point is that the, the conversations that occur behind closed doors um, are so remarkable and so personal. And it's very different than standing in front of a room of however many people and saying what you need to say and moving on, because you're not going to face them the next day. What you're saying is those strengths are off camera. They are. They primarily. are. No question. No question. At an era when no the camera... It's increasingly increasingly critical. And, um, you know, I do think it's interesting. I had the same experience you had, which is after the election, everybody sort of said, God, well, how come we didn't see that Bob Dole? Um, You know, I think he got better. I think he got more comfortable. Um, uh, But at the end of the day, he is somebody for whom personal relationships and connections were enormously important. And it's difficult to translate that for some people. Um, And you think of the people that we've had, you know, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, um, you know, who are so facile in terms of, um, you know, Reagan wasn't as good, at least in the experiences I had in a room where he sat with 15 senators or something. Uh, He wasn't as good at the detail. He wasn't as good at... Um, that kind of legislating, um, it, but it, in front of a group, I mean, he was uh, charismatic. Uh, and Dole's strength was clearly in the room, 
with a, you know, it's sort of like the difference between Tony Bennett and Sting. I mean, Tony Bennett's always going to be better in a small room, and Sting's, you know, going to do great in front of Madison Square Garden. Um, it, it, you know, it's a different style. You mentioned Medicare. Let me ask you, in, how did Dole and his conservatism evolve over the time that you knew him? And and I know that gets into all sorts of other right. issues uh, that the party was clearly moving yes. to the right. Yes, um, he sometimes gave the the appearance of chasing after it, uh, mm-hmm. not always successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can think of a number of instances mm. in which um, there was certainly internal stresses. Yes. Yes. As increasingly, particularly the religious right, yes. came to uh, call the shots yes. in the national party, and and you know where was he in all of that, and how did it evolve? And you know, um, because he often looked uncomfortable, hardline, pandering. I mean, he's not a good pandering. No, he's not. He's not a good actor. No, he's not. Uh, and that I think is to his credit. Um, the thing that I um, found, at least in the issues that I was responsible for um, over time, was a remarkable sensitivity to the common man. And uh, whether it was welfare, whether it was social security, disability, um, uh, food stamps, uh, you know, the budget impasse when we, you know, went into uh, into the black hole during the uh, sort of early Gingrich days when we shut down the government. Um, at the end of the day, I think Dole's view was, in fact, truly a conservative view, and that is that there is a role, but a limited role for government. But it is an important role, and there are people for whom the government is the safety net, and for whom... Um, it is important to give them assistance to support them in their uh, their lives, uh, but that they have to make an effort to support themselves. And do you, do you think that was influenced by his own experiences after oh, the war? Oh, absolutely. Not only his own experiences after the war, uh, the experience of his family being dependent upon welfare, his family living in the basement of their home. Uh, also, you know, the, the kindness and goodness of, of uh, strangers and of neighborhoods. I mean, he was the first one It takes a village. I mean, if you think about it, uh, long before Hillary Clinton, you know, Bob Dole was, in fact, dependent upon the village. You know, when they all collected money in that cigar box, um, he ultimately, I think, had an extraordinary appreciation for what government can do, but also a sensitivity to what it can do run amok. Uh, And the fact that it isn't dependent upon drawing funds from people who are, in fact, supporting themselves and their families. And so the balancing between what government can do and should do in supporting people and what people ought to do for themselves. Uh, You know, you'd walk into a room with him, however many people there were in the room, he was immediately drawn to the person in the wheelchair. He was immediately drawn to the person who was challenged in some fashion uh, with an absolute comfort. Um, but he was also highly suspicious of organized constituencies that, that spoke for these uh, folks. Uh, you, you, know, you and I have both 
heard him go off about some of these um, advocacy groups uh, with, that he didn't feel were in fact benefiting the people for whom they were organized. Uh, and they were just, you know, professional, uh, you know, sort of advocates. Um, but when it really came down to the individual, um, I also recall during the budget shutdown, it was one of the many days where uh, we were going back and forth over some kind of a continuing resolution to try and open things back up and, and allow us to continue to negotiate this sort of budget stalemate. And um, I was sent into the cloakroom to call over to the house and find out, you know, whether we were going to be able to move something. And the answer came back, you know, no way, no how, you know, we're holding, holding. And I went out to tell him, and uh, it was on the floor. He was standing uh, up from the well, and I said, you know, I just checked in with a particular leader on the house side, and uh, they said, no way. And he said, you tell them the next time that I'm not holding it because unlike them, there are people who live on their paychecks from paycheck to paycheck, and half of those people have never understood what it was like to go without a paycheck. Um, I mean, he was so angry, uh, not at the principle of trying to be you know, fiscally reasonable, but at the pain it was causing to people who had no responsibility uh, and the lack of understanding of the sensitivity of that issue for people who really were dependent. And you saw that time and time again. You saw that in Social Security issues. You saw that in disability issues. You saw that in food stamp issues. I mean, I'm sure there are people to this day who think he did it simply food stamps because of the ag community. You know, uh, this was a man who knew what it was like to live in circumstances where people potentially went hungry. Um, and so... He's a real streak of populism. Oh, absolutely. Him, absolutely. And it, it comes out of sort of bedrock beliefs in a Kansas upbringing uh, where people are tough and they're independent, but they're also dependent upon one another. Uh, you work hard and uh, you don't count on others to bail you out, um, but you help your, your colleagues and your friends and your uh, neighbors when you need to. And it, actually, and it could find expression in pointed jokes about Gucci goats. Oh, absolutely. Uh, not that he was, you know, immune to, uh, you know, to, uh, to that in the sense of, uh, you know, he had done well in his life, I think better than he ever expected. And, you know, like a lot of, of us who came up from either lower or middle class families, you know, doing better than ever expected and far better than our parents ever did, we still are surprised you know, not having been, you know, gifted with that. Uh, and I think he was always a little uncomfortable with enormous wealth. I mean, they used to laugh about the, you know, the sort of millionaire caucus in the Senate, um, uh, which was remarkable. But he was never comfortable in that world, I think. I mean, he obviously has done very well, he and Elizabeth both. But, you know, at, at heart, I think he is a, he's a Kansas kid, and that's where his values are. There's a scene in the Woodward book, which I, struck me, um, because in some ways it, it's so unnecessary, but it's revealing. There's some sort of strategy session, and uh, you know, the, uh, a 
obviously the consistent with the Hollywood speech and all of this that's right. being promoted. Right. You know, as the as the winning strategy in '96. And right. Someone must have said something because all of a sudden he went off, and he didn't have to. Uh, basically, talking about gay people and said, "We're not going to single out." Um, any group to go after. I mean, it was, a, mm-hmm. it was this kind of almost ferocious counter mm-hmm. to, to the implication that there's political advantage to be had by exploiting these cultural divisions. Right. And I wonder to what extent the whole kind of social values conservative, mm-hmm. because he is a social values conservative. Mm-hmm. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. there's a subtle distinction between, in effect, living it because it's it's in your right. bloodstream right. and sort of politically exploiting it, yes. particularly when it comes to people, individuals. Yes. Well, and I think that's the point. Um, you know, where he may agree or disagree with lifestyle choices or, uh, you know, any number of things in terms of people's beliefs, political beliefs, religious beliefs, whatever they happen to be. Um, I don't think... I can think of an instance where he would he deliberately uh, harm, embarrass, single out uh, an individual or their choice. He could personally disagree, but the thought of him, you know, standing on the floor railing about people who'd made a different decision than he'd made about lifestyle or religion is so antithetical to him as a human being. Um, I think he is enormously understanding of people who have different views. He could hold different views in his own right, but I don't think he would ever take advantage uh, unless it was just so abhorrent. I mean, you know, sort of overt racial discrimination, someone who had, you know, whose whose views were based in hate, uh, you know... um, I can't imagine him tolerating that. Tolerate is a good word. Because I wonder, presumably, too, when you get to the point of leading the Senate, mm-hmm. you learn tolerance because oh. you're you, dealing with a lot of people you who, learn the patience who have, of Job. Who have <laughs> right. human weaknesses. Right, and, um, right, right. Um, Picadillos. Well, yes. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. Um, how did he deal with all of that? Uh, you know, again... Um, he really did have the patience of Job. And I don't know whether that is um, out of sort of um, experience under fire. I mean, his own sort of patience that it required to come back from World War II and his injuries. Uh, the months and months of, of sort of, you know, being, you know, waiting for that small increment of, uh, of improvement. Uh, he could be quick-tempered as we all know, but he would never uh, fail to surprise us when we were all chomping at the bit on something, going after someone or some issue, and he would just, you know, you just wait. You wait it out. Um, And similarly, with sort of watching the cast of characters, and we had from the sublime to the ridiculous in the Senate, in terms of personal behaviors. I mean, people that would have, you know, raging, pouting, you know, screaming, you know, meltdowns. Um, You know, people would come up, you know, it's 
Thursday at noon, you know, are we getting out today? I, you know, I want to go off and play golf. You know, it's like, you know, please. Um, where he just showed enormous patience and restraint. Um, and the ability to sort of tolerate those differences. Um, we were on the floor one night quite late, 2 o'clock in the morning or some ridiculous hour, and um, waiting for a consent agreement, waiting for an agreement to essentially allow us to proceed or close down, knowing what the rules were going to be the next day. And we were all just crazed, you know. Um, and the, his, his counterpart, the person who was the leader at the time, just wasn't given us anything, had sort of disappeared into the, uh, to the ether. And we were all just, you know, just get on the floor and, you know, start. And he was just, you know, he waited out, waited out. Um, and I think, in his, to his credit, the members came to understand and appreciate that. Uh, came to know that he wasn't likely to do the hair trigger kind of thing. And I think felt in that the, the, his tolerance and his willingness to let them melt down, which occasionally they all needed to do. Uh, and he used his own sort of response and anger and level of response, frankly, as a tool. I mean, you know, it didn't happen very often. When it did, people knew it was very serious. It wasn't the sort of histrionics that you see from somewhere, you know, the slightest thing in there sort of off-railing. I think are far less effective than people like Senator Dole who were very clear that when it mattered, it mattered. When it didn't, you know, you just let people, you know, these are people all of whom have constituencies, all of whom have needs. And I think that benefited him as a leader. That bipartisan respect that he enjoys, is that something that grew with over time? Yes, and I think it was. Um, I it think was becoming they, chairman of the finance committee a kind of a turning point. I, in I his think uh, becoming career. ranking first and then chairman. Um, I think there is no question people expected because it came so soon after the '76 election. I mean, um, uh, I think people expected the biting, you know, divisive politics. Um, uh, and um, what they came to see over time was someone who was, had, a, had an interest in actually resolving issues and was remarkably respectful, you know, whether it was of Long, whether it was of Moynihan, whomever it happened to be, or even on his own side. I mean, a wide array of points of view um, in terms of, you know, from Phil Graham to John Chafee. Um, uh, that, you know, he had an interest in convening. He had an interest in consensus. Uh, you know, when we had to, we forced it through, and we put the chairman's mark on the table, and we moved it. But um, he was remarkably responsive, similarly with the House. You know, whether it was Rostenkowski or, or whomever it happened to be, um, you know, Charlie Rangel, I mean, you know, you can imagine the sort of cast of characters in both the House and the Senate. I think people on both sides of the aisle, but on the Democratic side particularly, came to see that here was someone with whom we could deal. Here is someone that you could trust, someone whose word you could take as, as a, a, a pledge and a bond. Um, certainly um, with respect to Senator Byrd when Dole and Byrd were leaders and with respect to Senator um, uh, Mitchell when he and Dole were leaders, 
Uh, neither of them ever surprised one another. Uh, they, in both cases, they had remarkably good relations where they could talk person to person, and they both had constituencies who were difficult to manage. Uh, you know, and the number of times Martha Pope and I sat in the room and listened to Senator Mitchell and Senator Dole talk about what they were dealing with in their own caucuses as they were trying to get some <coughs> rational behavior. Um, you know, and, but you never heard a word of that out of the room. Uh, they never breached those those uh, confidences, uh, nor did they use them to their individual advantage. You know, Dole didn't then go out of the room and say, oh, we ought to hear what Mitchell had to say about sure. Never happened. Never How, happened. <clears throat> but uh, the, the, the evolution of the Republicans, say, in the Senate, a lot of it's generational. Uh, yes. It's ideological, but generational. Yes. For, for, yes. So, I mean, dealing with, from a uh, Alan Simpson conservative, Mm-hmm. to a Trent Lott conservative, mm-hmm. who was sort of first cousin to a new Gingrich conservative. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that whole transformation, mm-hmm. really, that occurred during his watch yes, of did. the Republican Party. I mean, how comfortable or uncomfortable was he, sort of philosophically and, and then individually? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's not just philosophy, although that had an enormous impact in terms of that, the sort of um, uh, development of the sort of conservative movement and um, uh, the, the transition from somebody like a, a John Chafee Republican to a, uh, a Trent Lott Republican. Um, it, it, it was generational, uh, no question. It also was... Um, uh, it, it, it was an expectation. I mean, you had an increasing number of people coming from the House. Uh, you had an increasing number of people who were younger, who had less history, but also potentially less commitment in terms of the institutional um, uh, behaviors and policies. Um, you had a society that was becoming more impatient. Um, and so, you know, as Joel would say, you know, his first years in the Senate, I mean, you didn't say anything for the first couple of years. Uh, you know, and your first speech on the Senate floor was a big deal. His, of course, having been about disabilities. Um, uh, you know, by the time he left, I mean, you know, the freshman would show up and <laughs> be on the floor talking. Um, and, and there was less acknowledgement of your seniors and less acknowledgement of the history that preceded you and those relationships, less commitment to those relationships lasting. I mean, you know, Danny Inouye and Bob Dole having been in the hospital together. I mean, that, that was a history of, of experience and time, and, and uh, they, you know... So it's a whole host of things. It's the politics. It's the it's the uh, the change in philosophy. It is the behavioral changes and societal changes that made the institution different. But in there also this this fundamental dichotomy that I've never been able to resolve that there was an increasing libertarian streak yes. in conservatism. Yes, and there's yes. a whole yes. school of thought that that argues rather without a whole lot of sophistication or nuance, that government's the problem. Yes, so no question. So how do you reconcile no question. wanting to be, in effect, the party of government right. if a, a substantial portion of your troops right. believe that government is, at, at the very least, um, an enemy? 
Well, I think that was the great challenge for Dole in his last few years. And I think, um, uh, you know, people talk about in the last couple of years, there wasn't an inch of air between he and Gingrich in a number of cases. Um, you know, when things were coming over, uh, particularly in the uh, contract for America, and they were, you know, shipping stuff over. And Dole, ha you know, really didn't have a lot of movement, you know, because he had Graham, you know, chipping at his heels. Um, and I think it became increasingly difficult for him. Um, you know, he did have people within the party, you know, Chafee and others, um, who were, you know, pulling on the other side. But even with health care reform in the early Clinton years, you know, when we saw the sort of moderates try to, you know, structure some middle ground, you know, historically Dole probably would have been right in there trying to find that middle ground, but at the end he had to distance himself and did. Yeah, even even consensus became a dirty word. A very dirty word. A, 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 a synonym for surrender. Yes, absolutely. And, and of course, the expectation on the part of some of the, the right wing that that's where Dole always really was, that we really couldn't trust him. You know, at the end of the day, he was always prepared to compromise the fundamentals to, you know, it was all about getting the deal. And so it was, you know, it was working against the expectations. Uh, and so in some cases, I think his instincts might have been to try and strike a middle ground and try and find uh, a solution and go around and have a conversation, as he did with Moynihan on Social Security. But the, the circumstances of the day made that difficult and almost impossible in some cases to do. Um, and I think it became more difficult over time. Um, and certainly as the House became more radical um, and um, more engaged and he was you know, being pressured with an increasing number of you know, cons very conservative individuals in the Senate, you know, he was boxed in terms of his ability to, you know, do what he would have traditionally done. How did that affect you? I mean, on your on your wall, you have the New York Times Magazine cover story. Yes. The campaign to demonize Sheila Burke. What was the campaign, and how did it affect him? You know, it was a, it was an interesting experience um, in a couple of ways. One. Um, I had always been viewed with some suspicion and increasingly as um, the conservatives became more active in the party uh, as having um, liberal leanings. And, um, you know, that wasn't necessarily a new concern, uh, but it clearly um, escalated. And what occurred were literally over a six or eight month period, a series of articles uh, from the Journal to the Times to the Washington Post to Business Week to Newsweek. Uh, and it was a series of stories that kept sort of quoting one another. Everything and this from, was when, roughly? This was, was this before 96? This was before 96. And um, it was, um, it, it, it got to the point where it was articles quoting other articles, quoting individuals, having quoted individuals. Uh, I found it interesting at the time that a number of the people who wrote the stories never spoke to me, ever. Um, but it was triggered in part by the issues of the day, which was welfare reform. And, um, uh, you know, a series of meetings with the conservative organizations, um, uh, some of the family groups and some of the others, um, where, you know, arguably I was perhaps not as tolerant or patient as I might have been in the course of conversations. 
uh, I was viewed as hostile. Um, you know, there were issues around uh, whether marriage was the fundamental of society. Uh, my view was it was certainly important, but it wasn't, you know, there were a whole lot of people who were single who were contributing to society as well. Uh, you know, religious groups and people who had chosen, you know, celibacy and a variety of other things who were also part of society who ought to be acknowledged. Um, but it was viewed as an outright hostile act. Um, and I think, um, you know, the interest was, one, in damaging Dole, and sort of this is another example of where Dole is soft and he has these people around him. The suggestion that I was um, leading him in a direction that was uh, antithetical to sort of the very conservative points of view on issues like welfare reform, which were quite important at the time. Uh, and I think it was very difficult for him. I mean, I think there was story after story uh, including a story that said, you know, men of Dole's generation, you know, were particularly susceptible to women uh, like me who were aggressive. And, um, you know, at the time I sort of commented that... It's sort of stereotype on stereotype. It's stereotype on stereotype. But, you know, the thing I found amusing was, of course, I can't imagine anybody less likely to be pushed in a direction he didn't want to go than Bob Dole. Um, and I also uh, fundamentally was of the view that the one thing I was good at was understanding who was in charge, you know, and I think our staff was strong because my view of the staff was you present Dole with the facts, both sides, and you let him choose, but you want to make sure he has the basis upon which to make a decision that's well-reasoned, and he could choose to go either way, and there were a number of issues upon which I disagreed with him, um, he knew that, I knew that. I wasn't about to try and confuse him about that and didn't ever want to be in a situation where I'd gotten him to vote on something that was at odds with where he was. Um, but I think it was very difficult. I think he was under a lot of pressure by the campaign uh, staff as well as by the, you know, sort of the conservative um, uh, constituencies to get rid of me. Um, it, you know, we had this odd situation where at one point Bob Bird went to the floor and went on at length about, you know, you want to go after Dole, go after Dole. It's not about his staff. I mean, you know, if you have a problem with him, deal with him. You know, why are you dumping on the staff? Um, but at the end of the day, he made a decision that, um, you know, I was contributing, that he wasn't concerned that at the end of the day my being on his staff was going to put him at risk. I offered to resign, went into him and uh, said, I'm prepared to step down at the end of the day if this is going to be harmful to you at the campaign uh, and just harmful for you in terms of getting your business done here. I'm prepared to resign. Uh, and he said, no, you know, I think the right thing to do is to stay there and to, you know, to continue to work through. Um, but it was a very difficult period, difficult for him, difficult for me. Uh, you know, you, I, in my view as a staff person never wants to see their name in the paper. I certainly didn't. Uh, and I'd spent years, you know, 18 years before that not being in the paper. Uh, and I sure as hell didn't want the last year and a half to be in the paper. I think that's it's interesting because, I, I, I mean, I can think of other people, just my own experience, where I always went out of the way. If, if a reporter called, I wouldn't talk. Right. And even when he, I'm to this day convinced, that Time Magazine story, 
in 96 where he leaked the memo that I'd yes. written, yes. you know, yes. about yes. You're, you're feeding the crocodiles yes. And, yes. and all of this. Yes, and yes, yes. I wouldn't talk to anyone. Right. And um, you, you think that got points with him? That, I mean, that people, I mean, it was a, it was yes. kind of loyalty. Because in this it town, was. most people, let's face it, give them the opportunity to promote themselves. Do. Yes. Um, it's interesting. I think there, there are uh, two things that are interesting. One, um, I think he was enormously grateful um, that he didn't have people who leaked stuff all over town. Um, and it was important to him, and it was important to him that people weren't out there promoting themselves. Um, on the same, in the same vein, though, interestingly enough, I think to the extent that we were subject experts, um, you know, whether it was Rod when he was staff director and uh, substantive on tax policy, or Carolyn Weaver who was doing Social Security, or Sidney Olson who did welfare. Um, I think he enjoyed having them, you know, noted as experts, noted as having said things, or noted as having saying the senator, you know, says the following, and um, was quite supportive of that and would say, go and talk to, you know, make this clear. Um, and so it, it was, it depended on the context and depended on the subject matter. I think he was pleased that I was viewed as an expert in health policy and was often, you know, sourced in terms of health issues. Um, but that was a substantive policy-related matter. Uh, and we were always very careful about, you know, doing it in a way that was supportive of Dole or where Dole was or this is why the senator is doing the following things. Um, but he was blessed in that we didn't have people, therefore, that were out just you know, doing their thing, uh, with a couple of rare exceptions. Um, and I think all of us who were in leadership, whether it was me or Rod or Bob, I think we'd have fired anybody we found leaking stuff. And don't you think there really was a qualitative difference between the personal staff or, 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 or committee staff, for that matter, and the campaign staff? There was certainly... Certainly a, in 96. Certainly in 96 there was a difference. Um, but I think that's in part the nature of those jobs. Yeah. You know, I've always viewed campaign staffs, and it's the only experience I had, the time I spent with the campaign after we left the Senate. Um, you know, campaign staffs are, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, are mercenaries. I mean, they are people to a large extent who come in who are experts in, in running campaigns. Um, and that is their job, and that is what they know a great deal about. And they, most of them tend to move on, you know, to the next one. Uh, there are some that obviously stay with the member. And, but in most cases, the big campaigns like this are people who, you know, do campaigns and then move on. Whereas your committee staff, personal staff, and others, these are people who are in it for the long haul in terms of an individual and in terms of their policy agenda. And so you approach it, I think, somewhat differently. You come with different expertise. You come with different expectations. But, but even in the worst-case scenario... You, you bought someone's loyalty. You bought yes, their silence. Yes, no question. No question. You know, no question. And, and when, from time to time, as it became painfully apparent in the 96 campaign, things weren't going terribly well. Yes. And, and you know, there were people who were eager yes. off the record and sometimes on the, on record, the record to uh, disassociate themselves yes. from 
troubles. No question. No question, because they you know, have the mind toward moving on to the next thing uh, and not being part of a failure. Uh, and I think there is a difference with uh, staff that have been you know, engaged with an individual over a long period of time. Uh, but I think politics, unfortunately, to a certain extent, breeds that kind of, um, I mean, you see it today, you see it all the time, where, you know, who's talking out of school and what they're saying. And, um, you know, I think it's, a, it's an unpleasant uh, and unfortunate aspect of the world in which we live. Uh, and there are people who like getting their names in the paper and people who like being sourced as the expert on um, you know, you see it in today's campaigns, whether it's people talking about John McCain or talking about Fred Thompson or talking about, you know, whoever. You know, we're sort of almost doing this backwards, but I have to tell you, I, I'll never forget, as long as I live, a week before the 96 convention, I was in Grand Rapids and I got a call. She called first and said he would be calling. And um, he called. And they were so spooked at that point. The Woodward book was out. Yes, yes. And they were so, I mean, understandably um, affected by the thought that these people who assumably were loyalists yes. would in fact have blabbed yes. Woodward. Even yes. though, on balance, I mean, Bill came off looking pretty good yeah, he did. in the book. Comparatively Woodward speaking. Today he voted for yeah. Bill. Yeah. Uh, that said, but, you know, so... <laughs> Senator gets on the phone, and he's got the the accepted speech. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, you know Elizabeth is torn because you know Elizabeth wants everything baked into yes. the cake weeks in advance, so you can then you can no prepare. surprises. You know, right. never mind the content; it's delivery. Right. You know, right? Right. Um, on the, at the same time, that same degree of caution right. wants everything to be perfect, right. and clearly. They weren't yeah, comfortable with this. Mm-hmm. So he gets on the phone, and, uh, and he wants you know, to go over the speech. And I said, okay, well, let me give the facts over. He said, no. I said, I, he said, I'll read it to you, which right away tells me they're really Yeah, spooked. we're in trouble. Okay. Right. So he starts reading this speech. And, of course, Mark Halperin, who has great strengths, yes. but who has a certain apocalyptic view yes. of the world. yes. And it's on and on and on about age. And my heart is sinking because I, I, I'm thinking like Clinton. Because I know that right. the bridge to the 21st century is taking shape paragraph by right. paragraph. Right. You know? right. And there are ways to use your age to advantage. Yes. But it's not by sounding crotchety and no. oh. culturally superior right. to, the, to the electorate. Right. Right. Well, anyway, but the funny thing is, like the first paragraph or something, he talks about you know, the, the advantages of age and it instills serenity. And I said, wait a second, right. Senator, stop right there. I said, you know, right. you are many things. Yeah, but, but serene, serene is you know? not among them. You're not and, near the, the, the tomb here. You know? Right. Anyway, we went on. Um, and I'm, anyway, that conversation, he said, well, would you be willing to come to San Diego? I said, now stop and think, Senator. The worst thing in the world that could happen would be if I came to San Diego right, right. and word got out and right. Halpern went ballistic. And of course, in the end, yes, that's that's what, you know, where we were. What happened, right? Um, it does raise questions that 
at that point in the campaign right. was something that important, right. it could be that much influx. And how much of it was just nerves, you know, the biggest speech of your career, right. how much of it reflected divisions within the campaign, you know, itself. Mm -hmm. um, what does it tell you about? What it tells me about um, Dole is a number of things. One, uh, as you and I have found, um, he develops a comfort and a trust in a limited number of individuals. I mean, he deals with lots of people. He has a limited number of individuals he really trusts and whose judgment he trusts. And when there is concern, those are the people to whom he turns. Um, I had a recent experience where he called about looking to hire someone um, for a project he was involved in. And um, we talked about somebody uh, that I, su I suggested someone, and we talked about it. And at the end of the day, that's the person he chose to hire. And as I talked with him about the person, what I talked to him about was this is somebody who will watch your back. This is someone who, uh, at the end of the day, will be sensitive to you and your concerns and your needs and with whom you can be absolutely direct and straightforward and honest and certain that that will be held in confidence. And my guess is part of what you saw was um, uh, a, a throwback to the days where he could deal with you in a way that he knew it wasn't going to get leaked. He knew you weren't going to take advantage of it. He knew you would be direct and honest with him because you didn't owe him anything. Or you didn't, not that you didn't owe him anything. You had nothing at risk here, I mean, in a sense. I mean, this was a relationship that was longstanding. Um, it, it, he also knew you'd be absolutely straightforward with him. And I think when pressure occurs when they are anxious, they go to the people they trust. So I, I should it was like, it's like her calling me when she was hiring her staff in the Senate and she wasn't, tr she wasn't comfortable that she was necessarily getting all the judgment she needed. Um, you know, she calls the people she trusts. I think it was an enormous compliment to you. Uh, I think it reflected anxiety on his part and anxiety in the environment in which he was. Uh, where he wasn't certain he could trust everything he was being told or heard. Um, and, you know, how many times after you'd left us did he, you know, have me call you and say, Rick, can you, um, you know, how many times since, you know, I haven't worked for him, uh, you know, in almost 11 years. Um, how many times do I get the call um, and it's because at the end of the day, um, you know, it's, um, I remember when he, um, had this last, uh, now a while ago, but when he became so ill and, um, uh, we were very worried about him and, uh, he was hospitalized and, um, uh, up in New York and then uh, here as well. And there were only a couple of us that, you know, she called and he called and said, oh, you know, if you have any time or if you're free today, 
come on over. And, um, you know, when he's in periods of time like that, he falls back on the people he trusts. And um, I think it's a credit to him um, and a very human reaction, you know. Do you remember when Dr. Koikian died? Yes, yes, yes. How he... Uh, it was like losing his father. I mean, it was like losing, uh, I mean, I think um, it was like when Joanne died. I mean, it was, um, you know, it was like losing a part of himself. I mean, someone uh, who had seen him at his weakest and uh, someone who was there without hesitation, without question, without reason, I mean, just because they were there. And, um, you know, I think there are probably, you know, 10 people in his life. Uh, Bob Ellsworth, you know, Dr. Clickin, Joanne. Uh, you know, I'd like to think I'm one of those people. Um, Rod, I think, is one of those people. Um, certainly, uh, you know, his wife, Elizabeth, is clearly the first on that list. Uh, but all, my guess is that's a relatively small universe. I mean, he talks to a bazillion people, and I'll bet there are 15 or 20 that, you know, if you asked him. Um, Were you on the floor when he went over to pay his tribute to Dr. Koikit? I don't remember. Yeah. I think I was. He, because I think he I was. started, and he couldn't. He couldn't continue. Go on. Yes. And some, I think it was Jesse Helms sort of, you know, stepped into the breach. Right, and, um, right. And then, and then started again. Yes. And, 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 he, Just, and he got to the poem at the end. Yeah, couldn't do it. And couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Um, it was like the Nixon eulogy. It, it was uh, when we all flew out for the funeral. One of the stranger airplane flights. <laughs> Tell me about it. Uh, I'm trying to remember who it was. Because George McGovern, yeah, was McGovern on the was flight. on the plane. Uh, Bob Packwood was on the plane, and I think it was G. Gordon, Liddy. It was one of the Nixon. It was either Liddy, um, I think it was Liddy who was on the plane. Uh, Corlogus was on the plane with us. Um, I, I mean, and it was like a scene out of I don't know what kind of movie. Listening to the stories. Um, uh, I think it was it was it was was it G Gordon? It was one of the Nixon sort of uh, mafia. Mafia, and uh, I mean, it was just an amazing uh, flight out. I mean, just in, in listening to the members uh, talk with one another and their own recollections. Um, you know, and I, w I, I I was lucky. I mean, I um, you know saw Nixon when he came to the Senate a number of times. And it always amazed me, um, notwithstanding everything else, Dole would invite people over, uh, and the room would be full, Democrats and Republicans, um, to listen to him. And it was usually after he'd come back from China or come back from someplace as a private citizen. Uh, but Dole really made an effort to bring him back, in a sense. Can you explain, because I saw he, you know, he kept those letters yes. in the desk. Yes, yes. And I'll never forget one day, so I heard from your pen pal. And yes. he opened the desk, and here was this stack of handwritten letters. Yes. Shameless flattery. 
I mean, yes. you could see oh. you could see what Nixon was up oh, to. Oh, absolutely. It was transparent. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but can you explain, logically, given what Noel went through? Right, because of that. And the uh, basically being dumped. Yes. And almost losing his seat in 74. Right. And all of that, and yet there was a very special bond, an emotional bond. Yeah, I don't know that I, I don't know that I can. Um, I, I don't know that I can. I don't know whether it is Dole's instinctive um, sort of, you know, here's somebody who just got, you know, the crap beat out of him and, uh, you know, in part uh, for good reason, um, but who also contributed enormously. I hope that's not one of my museums. Um, but Dole's America certainly overlapped with the silent majority. No question. No Culturally, question. there was an affinity. No question. Um, but I don't know that that's it. Um, uh, you know, there's no question that the letters were really quite remarkable. But there was also no question that setting everything else aside... Um, Nixon had an extraordinary sense of foreign policy and of uh, the sort of global issues. Um, But I don't, you know, I honestly don't know. Uh, I mean, it was always kind of an odd situation. Um, uh, And I was always stunned that these people would show up who you would think would be just antithetical to everything Nixon stood for from a personal standpoint. Um, so I don't know if it was just the intellectual curiosity. I don't know whether it was because of, you know, a sense that, you know, he had done extraordinarily terrible things, but, you know, had contributed in a number of ways in terms of, you know, his contribution to sort of moving, you know, the agenda forward in a foreign policy. I don't know the answer to that question. It's funny. From time to time, people suggested more of a parallel between the two than I really think exists. In because what? it's cute. Well, in the sense, they both you know, obviously came up from oh, extraordinarily. Uh, yes, humble. yes, They both worked their way yes. up to the top yes. through sheer merit. Yep. They, yep. They were not necessarily naturals. Right, um, right, right. It, it, it took real labor. Yep. And yet, my sense is for all the so called dark side, um, that Dole was a fundamentally. More integrity. Moral. Yeah. Yes. I mean, Dole, yes. yeah. Dole never crossed Mine the Dole's line. Son. Never crossed the line. And somehow never lost track of where the line needed to be. Russell, um, Kansas. Yes. Was yes. always yes. with him. And, uh, and, and Nixon, on the end, it was rootless. Yes. And you never sensed that about Dole. Um, and I can't imagine him ever surrounding himself with people, you know, who would have moved him in that direction. And he didn't. I mean, if you think about the people he surrounded himself with, I mean, arguably he may not have had the strongest political staff, and that may have been one of the, you know, he didn't have the sort of Karl Roves or, you know, Jim Bakers or people like that. Um, Could he have had those? I mean, would he have... I mean, that's Would he have ever been comfortable? Question. Would he have been comfortable? Would he have... Would he have ceded that degree of authority? Well, query whether he ceded a fair amount of authority to Joanne. And I think he did, yeah. politically. 
Um, you know, what if you'd have four of Joanne or five of Joanne? You know, the um, you know sort of kind of Haldeman, Ehrlichman. You know, sort of, uh, or if you look at Bush, you know, Bush one or Bush two, or Clinton in terms of you know, uh, sort of his retinue of people. Um, you know, he did cede a lot of authority to Joanne um, uh, on a political basis, and the question is whether, in doing that to one person, he didn't get the perspective and the bench strength that he might have needed. Um, you know, he wasn't somebody who. Um, uh, handed over responsibility easily, as you and I both know, on a, from a policy standpoint. Uh, you know, he was always, you know, sort of, y- 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 you were careful about how far you went afield. It took a long time to develop a relationship that allowed you that freedom. I mean, I ultimately had it, you know, Bob, Rod, uh, all of us had it. Uh, but on the political side, you didn't, you know, he was always there, always making those decisions, and the only check was, in fact, Joanne. And so query whether, um, had he, would he have benefited from a broader array, and, you know, having developed that relationship with her, whether she would have ever permitted it. And um, not clear to me she would have, and he made that decision. I mean, he could have, you know, altered that, chose not to for reasons, you know, that made sense to him. Um, but I think the difference with Nixon uh, was that he never, it never crossed that line and wasn't fundamentally ruthless. Um, but, uh, you know, Nixon did compliment me on my legs, so I, have, I think of him fondly, <laughs> even you know, to this day. He my, said, I had great legs. Bob Dole damn near died at the time, but... <laughs> It was in comparison to Hillary Clinton at the time. Oh, well. <laughs> Dole said she knows more about health care than, you know, or forgotten more than Hillary knows. And Nixon said, well, yeah, she's got better legs. So I just want that, the record to show that. That's right. His gift for small talk manifesting itself. And of course, you know, so Dole frequently. was, you know, paled visibly. And I think Corlogus <laughs> backed out of the room. And I think Bob Packwood was there. And he backed out of the room. <laughs> But it is, uh, I'll carry that in my memories. My theory, whatever it's worth, is Nixon never did an uncalculated thing in his life. No. And if you look at both Mrs. Nixon's funeral as well as his own, he saw to it that Bob Dole was the eulogist. Yes. And I will go to my grave convinced Dole's candidates for 96 were Bob Dole and Pete Wilson. Yes. Both of whom spoke at both funerals. Yes. Interesting. Richard Nixon knew Bob Dole well enough that to know that he wouldn't be able to get through a eulogy. Oh, that's interesting. Without breaking down. That's interesting. And he knew that that was the best thing that could happen. That could happen to Bob Dole. Interesting. I, I literally interesting. believe that. Now. Interesting. I can never prove it, but no, that's you know, an interesting question. It's just very Nixonian. It was he, remarkable. He wanted to show him off. It was remarkable. You know, it was remarkable. Um, uh, it's an interesting question. Very interesting question. How difficult was the decision to leave the Senate? And what were the origins of it? Uh, I think it was very difficult. Uh, it was a place he loved. Uh, it was a place that loved him. Um, I think... Uh, it was the campaign and the campaign staff. 
who convinced him that he couldn't do both, that increasingly he was going to be at risk having to run the place and having that be a target for people that he was running the place or was positioning himself or wasn't there, that that, you know, at the time that was more of an issue. It was more than this sort of tactical need to shake up a campaign that had become no, sort of dead in the water. I, uh, it may, that may well have been part of it, but I really sensed it was more, you can't, you know, keep act, you know, the, if you're there, you're going to act like a legislator. Um, and uh, the, the impatience of the campaign folks uh, now, that's not to suggest that at the end of the day it wasn't his decision, because clearly it was his. And it may well have been, in part, um, uh, you know, to shake things up. But I think it was more, you can't, you can't be here and do what you have to do uh, and not be increasingly exposed and uh, distracted. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, God bless him. Um, you know, and I'm sure I'm as much at fault as anybody. I mean, you know, we were checking in and asking and, you know, Simpson was running the place, but, you know, Dole's instinct was when you're in charge, you know, when you're the guy, you're the guy. And, uh, you know, he felt the responsibility of that, um, even in the campaign. How widely would he have consulted before taking a decision like that? Not very, I don't think. Um, I mean, I, I don't know that for a fact. Uh, I'm sure he did talk with some folks. But he was also somebody who, when he wanted to make a decision, he made a decision. And uh, I suspect it, also the desire to keep it confidential, to have it you know, be uh, a decision. You know, once you make it, you make it, and you, you know, that's, that's that. Do you remember how he broke the news to, to you? Yes. I remember it very well. Uh, he walked into my office, and uh, he'd been in with Scott, um, and you know th- th- there was a there was uh, it, it was not unknown that the campaign was pushing hard. That you know there was this anxiety about his divided loyalties. I mean, campaign uh, running the Senate. Uh, he was under increasing pressure from a lot of his colleagues. I mean, you know, you're gone all the time, and we gotta, you know, we can't just, you know, have you gone all the time and have everybody focused on you. And, you know, he had the advantage of having the having the floor, but of course that became an issue. You know, every time he, you know, rose on the floor, it was, you know, Bob Dole, presidential candidate. So, I mean, there was no question that there was a lot of um, street uh, conversation. But he walked into my office and uh, sat down. And you'll recall I had that you know, wonderful office that used to be a Supreme Court justice's chambers, you know, wonderful vaulted room uh, and with a desk and some chairs and a big conference table. And he walked in and said, uh, you know, I've made the decision. It's, um, you know, it's, it's time to go. And, um, uh, you know, I really feel like I need to, you know, be out there. And, um, you know, that people have to know how serious I am, that this is it. I mean, you know, as the speech sort of said, you know, this is it. I'm, you know, it's, it's this or nothing. And, um, you know, that we need to figure out how to tell the staff and, you know, an orderly transition. Um, and, you know, I, 
I said, well, you know, um, I think I remember saying, you know, do you mean you're taking leave of absence? You know, and he said, no, this is it. I'm stepping down from the Senate and, you know, uh, you know, not leaving myself uh, the ability. Because I thought at first it was step down from leader, you know, and just, you know, sort of run as a senator from Kansas and uh, and not be leader. And uh, no, no, I'm, you know, I've got to make it clear to everybody that this is the most important thing to me and I need to step down entirely from the Senate. Um, and uh, he left the office uh, having told me and I got up and took a walk around the block, as I recall. Um, so yeah, I remember it very well. And then did he break the news to his staff or was that... Your responsibility, or um, I think uh, we waited because we knew once the staff knew it would be public. I think uh, we didn't tell them right away because we knew it would leak. And were you in the meeting uh, where he met with uh, the Republican yes. caucus? Yes. What was that like? Um, I don't think they were terribly surprised, but I think. Um, you know, it's a place that power shifts pretty quickly. Um, and uh, some sadness on the part of his, some of his colleagues because uh, they kind of knew what was coming. Um, uh, he displayed his emotions. Didn't yes, he? he did. He did. Glee on the part of a couple of members, as you might imagine. Um, but, uh, you know, I think they saw the end of an era. Um, and I remember as well um, when he went over to the Hart Building, to the top floor in the Hart Building, to announce it, to do the public announcement, and uh, how many of his uh, Republican and Democratic colleagues came over. And Newt came over from the House. In fact, I walked him into, uh, I walked him over to Hart, um, and uh, you know, real sadness. Uh, Moynihan was there. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it, people did, setting aside the campaign, I think people saw it as the end of an era. In Republican leadership and in, in uh, you know, in the career of somebody. I mean, I think everybody kind of knew where we were in the campaign. Um, you know, and I think they saw it as a passing. And it was very hard. If he regretted the decision at any time, would you have ever said so? No. You know, I think he uh, he's remarkable, uh, and I think this has gotten him through a tremendous amount in his life, uh, of once you mo- decide to move, you move. And looking back, um, you know, I don't, I don't think that... Um, I think that would not have been helpful to him, and I don't think he would naturally then dwell on, oh, my God, what if? Uh, I just think he makes a decision, and he moves on, and I think that's um, that's him, and that's his life. I mean, you know, you deal with tough stuff, and you just get on with life. Um, and I think that's what he did. Was there a time during the fall campaign when you ever really thought that you could win? Um, Apart from the natural need to believe uh, to keep on going, but but 
You know, he's pretty realistic. He, he, was, he can count. He can count better than any of us. I think, you know, all of us had it in our, you know, you know there'll be a surprise. You know, it'll catch on. And, and the disgust with Clinton's personal behavior has to begin at some point to, uh, uh, to uh, pay a price um, or a price be paid. Um, I don't know that he ever, you know, he knew the numbers, um, knew where we were going. I mean, you know, whether it was the 96-hour victory tour or... Uh, you know, that somehow there'd be a surprise there. Um, it did narrow, I mean, the... It narrowed it, For no most question. of that campaign, yeah. you look at the public polls, yeah. 18, 20 point spread. Yeah, and... And of course, now you had the, the fundraising stories yes. that broke in mid-October. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and uh, there's almost reluctance on the part of certain voters, at least, to yes. close the deal. Right, right. And so, you know, I think there was there was a little bit of that. You know, could this be the surprise? You know, the sort of uh, do we wake up in the morning? Um, but, you know, whether he fundamentally really believed that. Uh, you know, he certainly worked like he did. He, you know, there was nobody more committed to, to doing the time and the efforts and, uh, and being out there and being on the road, uh, living on that frigging airplane um, in, you know, all sorts of crazy places. Um, you know, hard to, hard to say. How much of it, too, was the need to demonstrate that the age issue wasn't an issue? Or was that at I least think that a was factor? less, I, I think that was probably some of it, you know, um, uh, certainly after Chico, uh, after the fall. Uh, you know, there was a lot of sensitivity. Those photographs in the magazines and newspapers were just horrific. Um, and uh, I'm sure there was a little bit of that in terms of the pushback and, and, and proving it. Um, but I think more fundamentally, it's just in him to just throw yourself into it and do everything you have to do. Um, you know, I think the age issue is the age issue. And uh, there was a certain amount of I can... I can do this and just, uh, hang in there and work as hard as anybody. Did you ever hear him speculate about a cabinet or a Supreme Court nominations or not any the, of the kinds of things the that the You know, to... we rumbled a little around about cabinet, um, but, uh, but not the court, really. Um, uh, you know, I, I think he was wise enough or maybe not, but um, I think he was more focused on the short term, you know, getting this done and doing it well. I'm sure he had in his own mind, and, you know, we all grumbled and rumbled around about, you know, possible cabinet officers. I mean, one of the most interesting things was the vice presidential, you know, the process of vetting the vice presidential candidates and, um, and you know, just the conversations that occurred around individuals and, um uh, you know, and how that progressed. And it gave you a little sense of how you might think about other decisions going forward and the kind of criteria and characteristics and who, what the constituency was that you were trying to solve. Was Kim's decision motivated, at least in part, again, by, by this need to kind of surprise people, to shake yes. up yes. The, the dynamic of a yes. campaign yes. that was increasingly fixed? And the conservatives. No question. No question. Uh, you know, there were a number of remarkably credible people on the list um, that we worked through. 
but there's no question that no one expected. I, I don't think many people expected it. Um, and um, I think it was in part a surprise. It was in part an acknowledgement of the conservative and, and age. I mean, you had somebody who was younger and very virile and uh, also, you know, outreach. I mean, he was somebody who had a constituency that well, was... Well, to be a less skillful debater than uh, it was a nightmare. might have been uh, anticipated. It was a nightmare. <laughs> it was. I mean, yeah, but we had a, had a do-over, you know, to uh, after, after I, that. I wasn't on that debate prep team, but um, uh, I was on... I did doles, but um, yes... Did Dole take those preparations more seriously than, say, 76? Oh, he took them enormously seriously. Uh, uh, Really very seriously. Huge amount of work, huge amount of time on his part. Um, And, of course, in 76, he had a hell of a lot more to explain um, and uh, talk about. Um, But he took them very seriously. You know, we had people come in and work with us. Fred Thompson was, uh, you know, played the the part of Clinton in the debate, did a terrific job. Uh, He was great to work with. Um, But uh, he took it very seriously. Yeah, he really did. And uh, enormous amount of work. I mean, hours sitting uh, in Florida. you know, it's sort of like sitting on the beach up in the Capitol uh, where, you know, all of us were dying and, you know, he didn't seem to break a sweat. Can you describe <laughs> this Florida hideaway, getaway? Oh, my. Um, a certain time warp? Or uh, yeah, or? I would say, uh, you know, early 50s <laughs> uh, in style and in occupants uh, in terms of their age. Uh, not being in their early 50s, but having reached their age of majority in their 50s, uh, in the 50s. Um, I mean, it is an old style, old line, Florida uh, apartment building, uh, but had the unique uh, experience of having, um, you know, Howard Baker, Tip O'Neill, uh, was it David Brinkley? I can't yeah. remember. David Brinkley. Uh, I mean, just a bizarre array and of earlier, people. Earlier, I think both Humphrey. I know Tom Dewey died there. Yes, yes. And, and uh, Humphrey, I think. Um, uh, and um, was this all because of Dwayne Andrews? I, 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 certainly, it, it certainly had something to do with Dwayne because Dwayne had a place there as well, and it, they all sort of knew him. And, of course, it was next door to the hotel where the AFL-CIO used to hold their big meetings. It was the big union convention hotel. Um, but it was really like going back to the 50s. Uh, you know, a restaurant, you know, the sort of waiters from, you know, the 1922. Um, I mean, it was just, you know, it was as far from the sort of high-end profile, you know, massive sort of Florida places you think of now, you know, it was like something your parents owned. Um, and he was utterly comfortable. Completely was, comfortable. As relaxed, as um, laid back, uh, as uh, sort of um, low-key as a person could be. Um, and you know, we'd get up and we'd go sit outside uh, and do these conversations. And, of course, it was about 150 million degrees. 
and uh, there we'd be baking and you know he was as laid back and comfortable he wisely chose a place where he was just at home relaxed uh, could focus um, uh, you know go to Joe's Stone Crab you know and treat us all to dinner uh, and um, you know he was just at home so he was different outside of Washington or, or he could be different he, he could be um you know, I don't know that I would describe him as different. I mean, I think uh, one of the most remarkable uh, times and trips I spent with him was when we went for the World War II Memorial, the 50th anniversary. And it was probably one of the most emotional, uh, but one of the most extraordinary experiences where um, you saw him just completely relaxed uh, uh, with people that he cared deeply about um, in an environment, uh, you know, where we'd go out at, in Rome for dinner or um, where he was, you know, as, uh, you know, comfortable and, you know, sort of sitting back, have a glass of wine. I mean, you just never saw that here with the number of guys who showed up in the office in the Capitol for, you know, a cocktail at the end of the day, you never, ever saw the boss. Uh, a, you never heard him swear. B, you never really saw him uh, in any fashion, at any time. Uh, you know, just that sort of laid back, as comfortable as he was with his colleagues. Um, but um, there's something about certain environments where he is just very much uh, at home. Have you seen him in awe of someone? I mean, for example, meeting the Pope. Yes, I was just going to say the Pope uh, when we had our audience with the Pope. Um, this is John Paul II. This is uh, John Paul. Um, uh, it, it, there is, I mean, even for somebody who's a, a Roman Catholic, um, it, there, is, there was something mystical about that experience. And Dole not being a Catholic, um, there was because just, of that particular pope, yes, or the aura. Well, of just I haven't. The I've met a lot of them. <laughs> it's the only one I personally know by name, uh, you know, who passes the high Sheila test. Um, um, there was something mystical about that experience and about that person because he was just such an extraordinary human being. Um, but certainly that um, uh, clicking. You know, there was something um, about him that Dole uh, revered. I don't know if I'd call him in awe, but mm. certainly that Dole revered um, in terms of uh, who he was and, and the things he had done. Uh, those are the two that come immediately to mind. You know, it's odd, it's, it's not the same level, but I was always struck to the end of his life by the extent to which he held President Ford. Yes. In this kind of yes, yes, very special. But again, uh, I think obviously gratitude, and not just gratitude, but I also think again, not unlike your comments about Nixon, you know, here is somebody who came from relatively simple, uh, worked his way up, uh, you know, just a real uh, comfortable person, uh, extraordinary integrity, you know, um, so I think it was uh, his comfort, but just the nature of the person, um, I think he found remarkable. Um, 
I, uh, I uh, was uh, interested in his reaction to Maggie Thatcher. Um, I think, I don't know describe it as awe, but I think she was such a presence. I mean, the few times that he would have her meet with our folks, of course, it just put to shame what we would describe as debate. I mean, this is a woman who could just, you know, stand up and just nail whatever it was. I mean, she was just remarkable, and I think he was very impressed uh, with her. And, you know, there are people like that. Um, but you also think he, part of it is generational, but he is of the generation that reveres the presidency. Oh, no question. No question. I mean, it didn't matter. I mean, it does matter. But, um, you know, whether it was Bill Clinton or, you know, George Bush, um, um, there is a, it it, it was interesting. Um, During the um, uh, budget negotiations, uh, there were a number of times when we went down to the White House and were in the cabinet room um, uh, in discussions. And um, I'll never forget, we were sitting in the cabinet room. I was sitting right behind the boss, and he was at the table uh, next to the president, uh, next to Clinton. And uh, a bunch of the Clinton staff were kind of rumbling around and uh, kind of walking in and out of the Oval Office. I mean, just kind of walking in and walking out. And uh, Clinton was sort of sitting at the table with us, and and it, granted, this may have been an evening or a weekend meeting, I can't recall, but a couple of them, you know, were in like black t-shirts or, and Dole sort of commented to me, never will this happen, uh, you know, if I'm in this White House, and never would it have happened if it were Ronald Reagan or George Bush. Um, I mean, because it, to him, and I'm sure it wasn't intended, but to him it showed complete lack of respect for the individual and the office, that there is a protocol, there is a propriety about behavior and appearance. And I mean, you know, the President Clinton would be sitting at the table, and one of these guys would walk up and say something and, you know, walk into the, and, you know, Dole was sort of, you know, not that he was a, somebody who, you know, was unreasonably, narrow or rigid in how he approached things. I mean, we all had, you know, conversations. I would walk into his office. But the degree with which, I mean, it was like I would never occur to me to call him Bob, you know, to this day. And I worked for the guy for 20 years. Um, There's just a respect that one gives to the position in the office. Uh, And he would, he was offended when that wasn't acknowledged. Um, so there's no question to me there's a respect and an acknowledgement of that office and the individual in that office. And frankly, Clinton, in a number of ways, uh, you know, having given Dole the medal uh, after Dole had stepped down. I remember talking to Leon Panetta about that when Leon called and said, you know, what do you think Dole's reaction would be? Um, I think Dole was enormously appreciative uh, of that in many respects. Um, but also because of his appreciation and acknowledgement of the office and the importance of the office and acknowledgement by the office. But it was an extraordinarily kind thing of Clinton to do. Well-deserved, but also remarkably smart. kind. Very smart. No, there, He doesn't do anything without a calculated reason either. Um, but I think um, it was an enormously 
good thing to do for someone who deserved it. But I've heard, though, draw a distinction between Clinton, who you referred to as a, as a likable rogue. Yes. And say, for example, his vice president. Yes. And yes. I mean, what was it about Clinton? Was it just a, kind of a sneaking admiration for someone who was so gifted? I think, uh, he, uh, I think A, that. B, uh, Clinton was remarkably smart. I mean, just extraordinary mind. And, um, you know, very engaged in substance. Uh, and Dole always had enormous respect for that. You know, he was always a little, uh, you know, Reagan had such a different approach to, you know, sort of the cue cards when you'd get down to, the, to meet with the president, you know, welcome to the White House, Senator. Um, and uh, not that uh, Reagan wasn't gifted in many respects, but different, in a different kind of person. Uh, Clinton was gifted. Uh, you know, and I think in part Dole was uh, not envious, but certainly admired uh, his facility uh, with the public and his you know, the quivering chin. Um, and so, you know, Dole has respect for gifts, and, and Clinton was gifted in many respects. And he is a very gregarious person. I mean, they've done a number of things, obviously, since they both left office. Um, and, you Did know, they become genuine friends? I don't know that to be the case. I think they're certainly respectful of one another. Yeah. I don't know that I would describe them as friends. Certainly not like, say, Ford and Carter became. No, no really. I don't think so. And I don't think they have occasion. I mean, they have a huge generational difference. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, I think Dole was uh, respectful and admired things about Clinton in terms of his skills. I think he also was, um, you know, Dole has such a high moral... Uh, trigger point uh, that some aspects of the personal behavior I think Dole found uh, off-putting, shall we say. Well, one one last thing, and we're obviously we're going to need to try to schedule another sure. session uh, sure. to do everything in between. But in some ways, would you agree that you could almost sum up um, both the essence of Dole politically, in some ways personally? and the political challenges that he faced as the party in particular evolved when he, when he, when he said his hero was Dwight Eisenhower. When, when, if you stop to think of mm-hmm. the qualities that Dwight Eisenhower yes. represents to someone like a Bob Dole, yes. um, you know, it doesn't get better than that. I no. mean, just in terms of no. leadership, integrity, exactly. honor. Exactly. But Dwight Eisenhower is almost a man without a party in the current political yes. climate. Yes. Um, I'll never forget his son John once said to me, well, he said, you know, moderates don't have cults. <laughs> which, is a, which is a very True. shrewd observation. Good point. And in some Good ways, point. Dole, you know, if you, if you look at the trajectory of Bob Dole's career, yes. in 76, he was seen as this hard line. Conservative, yes. but Jerry Ford was the most conservative president since Calvin right. Coolidge. Right. And over time, they came to be held as deeply suspect. Right. By, by the, the conservatives. new conservatives. Right. Right. For whom a Dwight Eisenhower. Right. 
is is this kind of anachronistic. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Um, you know, it wouldn't surprise me. In fact, I think it uh, is in quite keeping with Dole in many respects that Eisenhower would, in fact, be the person to whom he would feel the most uh, connection and hold in the highest regard. Not that he didn't hold other presidents in high regard, Jerry Ford being among them. Uh, but it is for all the reasons you described, which is uh, unassailable ethical you know, uh, behavior and uh, position, extraordinary commitment to country, um, you know, extraordinary discipline as an individual. Um, and in his personal and, and uh, professional behavior. Um, now, he also is not exactly your charismatic, you know, sort of leader. And in today's world, it would be, you know, kind of, uh, you know, he, he couldn't compete against a Clinton, you know, in many respects, uh, or Reagan in terms of, you know, the sort of popular, although, you know, better than some, but... Um, it is generational, uh, but I think some of those um, um, skills and some of those attributes go beyond the generation. There's that wonderful, iconic photo, which I never discussed with him, but it, it just, you know, the picture of him shaking, shaking hands. Hand in the bike. And if you just look at what each man is wearing. Yes, yes. It's yes. sort of, you know, yes. there's, there's just a little bit yes. of. Country come to town. Yes. This, this, no question. This no Gucci gold. Freshman <laughs> congressman right. from yes. the sticks. Yes. You know? With a president well, who just got out of uniform and bought his first suit. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, but I mean, this is right. it just is this wonderful, unspoken. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Simple middle America. Yeah. Yeah, no question. Yeah. Um, so it's, again, I think you could take that picture and move it forward 30 years, and my guess is the connection would be the same. Similar backgrounds, similar commitments to country, similar, you know, perhaps in today's world, simplistic, uh, you know, commitment to uh, the founding principles of the nation um, and to the office of the president. Um, you know, I don't think it would be any different today. More, almost more about values than policies. No question. All about values. You know, the policies would ebb and flow with the time, um, but uh, it's all about um, individual characteristics and values. One last thing, and then we'll wrap up. The press. I mean, it's, I know it's a wide question. I mean, generally speaking, how did Dole get along with sort of both the establishment press, you know, mm -hmm. and and he was around long enough to see yes. kind of a, uh, you know, I mean, it's extraordinary when you think of, again, the trajectory of his career mm -hmm. from the first time he ran for Congress, yes. you know, and took out a few newspaper ads. Right. And and traveled around the district and talked right. to the editors. Right. You know. To, to 99,000 visits. John Stewart. To and, yeah. You know. <laughs> the Today Show. And, and he he uh, clearly had an ability to adapt. Yes. You know. And yet. But he not. He was never seen as a natural. No. Not. Uh, never seen as a natural, but always sought as a guest. Um. You know, uh, because of the authenticity. 
you think? Because I think because they knew he he wasn't a show. He wouldn't put on a. Because he was always prepared to say and engage, say something and engage. I think he was, um, uh, you know, very approachable. Uh, I think if you were to talk to, you know, um, uh, you know, any one of these guys um, uh, who spent a lot of time with him, whether it was on, you know the sort of Sunday talk shows where he was constantly there, um, you know, with Meet the Press, with Tim Russert, or any of these guys, if you would talk with them. You know, always engaging, always prepared to talk, always prepared to say something, not the sort of, you know, avoidance of all things controversial. Um, you know, not shaken up by sort of a change in tone, not, in, you know, in his... Uh, uh, m- more recent years, you know, hostile. I mean, just very approachable uh, and entertaining. Um, you know, quick on his feet, you know. Uh, and so, you know, always kind of an engaged person who, you know, you could see across the, the table and would connect with you. Um, you know, the, the writing press, um, you know, he had a love-hate relationship, um, particularly with the New York Times, mostly um, the latter, (laughs) the former, Um, you know, who who I think gave him little credit for a lot of the work that he did and were always suspicious of why he was doing something and always sort of second-guessing him. You know, the Wall Street Journal was kind of a mixed bag, um, you know, cons- con- you know, always questioned his conservatism and always, you know, around the tax issues and things of that nature. But um, it's curious because you're, what you're saying is he was seen as this establishment oh, Republican, absolutely. but the establishment press right. wasn't buying. No, they didn't. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to assume there was always a liberal bias, but... Um, I mean, there was, you know, he had this love-hate relationship with David Rogers, uh, who carried, covered a lot of the appropriations and the budget stuff. And, um, you know, I think it was a kind of a personal thing. You know, David was a Vietnam vet, and, you know, you know they always had sort of this odd sort of tension between them. Um, but I don't think the press gave Dole the credit he deserved for many of the things that he did. We're always a little suspicious. It was always, you know, he was just doing it for political reasons, and uh, it was all partisan politics and the sort of biting, you know, sort of wit. And I think showed little of the sort of personal side or the, or, you know, really looked at why he did things. There were exceptions to that. I mean, there were... You know, there were folks, uh, Bobby Horning and others, who, with whom he had a wonderful relationship. Um, but um, He and David Brinkley were very good he friends. He and David Brinkley were good friends. He and Tom Brokow got along very well, and I think Tom had remarkable respect for Dole, and Dole for Tom Brokow in many respects. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, McNeil Lair. Uh, Jim Lair, I think, I think it was Jim Lair with whom he had a, a good relationship. Um, you know, so I think it, you know, it varied. Uh, you know, I think he found Woodward kind of interesting. We were always stunned at what Woodward can get people to say, and what he, you know, we were always surprised at what we read. Um, 
but I think he had a you know respect for somebody who was an aggressive uh, investigative reporter and uh, seemed to do remarkably well at getting people to talk about things. Um, so I think he had a lot of respect for many of the individuals who uh, who covered him. Um, but I think he didn't feel there were a, a couple of people in particular at the times where he felt they really didn't give him fair due. Do you think he misses it? Being asked to go on Meet the Press. Um, and yeah, I'm sure he must. I'm sense. sure he misses the being the player. I mean, and being in the middle of these decisions. Having said that, I mean, the guy's got more to do than than God in terms of all the issues with whom, with which he's involved. Um, but there's no question that when you've spent your life, and certainly his uh, last years in the Senate, you know critical to everything that was going on, um, that that transition's very hard. I think he misses a lot of the relationships, the camaraderie of just walking in. You know, he was never happier than when he had five meetings going on. You know, he'd have a group in my office, he'd have a group in his conference room, he'd have a group in his personal office, he'd have a group across in the hideaway, he'd have Simpson handling something else on the floor, um, and he was happiest kind of, you know, going between all of those and kind of sticking his head in and, you know, have you got it fixed yet? Have you, you know, you got it done? Um, and, you know, being in the middle of everything and, um, you know, walking across the aisle and walking down the hallway, uh, you know, he just reveled in that sort of engagement. Um, just as this most recent work that he's done on uh, the Walter Reed issue, um, you know, the people with whom I've spoken who worked with him on that said he just threw himself into it, uh, you know, for a lot of reasons, personal reasons included. But, um, you know, he loves that kind of engagement. So he can't help but miss it. But again, I think unlike a lot of them, he moved on. You know, he's not... He didn't go back, does he? no. He doesn't. He's very cautious about going back, and I think respectful of the people who were there. Um, and for the first year, stayed completely out of it, didn't do speeches, didn't do anything. In fact, one of his first was to come to the Kennedy School at Harvard, where I was uh, executive dean at the time. And it was one of the few and early things that he did. He came up and gave a speech. And he really, for that first year, and even since then, in terms of going back to the Hill, doesn't do it. And I think it's having seen people that did. You know, we'd, we'd all sit in the cloakroom and somebody, some former member, would rumble into the cloakroom. You know, when, when the active members were sitting there engaged in something and want to sit down and chatter or, you know, talk business, which Dole found wholly inappropriate. You know, there's a line here. You know, if you want to come and visit with me on a business matter and set up a... a but to just kind of take advantage of your former position and kind of wander in and hang out, uh, he found, uh, I think, found that that wouldn't be comfortable for him. For some it is. For him it was not. And so I think he's been very respectful of the leadership in the Senate. Uh, and their position and not trying to uh, second-guess. You don't hear him second-guessing people. Uh, and uh, I think he's been very respectful in that can, respect. Can you ever imagine him retiring? No. I can't. Um, uh, it's a frightening thought. <laughs> 
of him just sitting at home doing Maybe for Elizabeth too. dialing, I'm sure. <laughs> for Elizabeth, I'm sure it's a frightening thought. Um, I don't see it. Don't see it. 